You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Unbelievable! Waddle ahead of that little man. I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, Waddle! Tua, shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown! Oh, man. It's Waddle! His sixth touchdown sixth pass touchdown of, the of the day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And on today's show, it is time for a game preview coming your way on a Friday. We'll dive into the key matchups for this primetime showdown at SoFi Stadium between the Los Angeles Chargers and your Miami Dolphins. Dolphins and Chargers, position by position, the film, the stats, what's at stake, three keys and the week 14 NFL picks, all of that and a heck of a lot more from somewhere in South Florida. This is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And of course, the reason we are somewhere from South Florida this week is that, as you all know, if you follow me on social, on Twitter, and all the kind words are very much appreciated from myself and my wife and my family, that we had our baby boy on Tuesday. And again, I, I we are just overwhelmed by the outpour of support and the outpouring uh, of just congratulations and, and well wishes to, to me and my family. So thank you all very much for that. And we will have a new outro for you guys on the podcast going forward. It is Chargers week. And I've had myself an interesting relationship with the San Diego Superchargers in my football fandom life because I don't have a second team and I don't believe in the fundamentals of a second team. Like, how is that even possible? When I, like, incorporated the heat into my life, it took, like, 15 years for me to be a real, like, passionate heat fan that cares about the outcome of games. I don't know how you adopt a a second team and have the same level of love for that team. Now, that said, (laughs) I usually adopt a team each season. So it's not like I'm diehard Minnesota Vikings till I die. It's each year based upon their personnel, the coaches, whatever the case may be that makes that particular team interesting. It's my bandwagon team and the chargers lead the other 31 teams in the NFL. And that distinction for myself, I was actually a full blown chargers fan back in 2007, unique circumstances with a one in 15 dolphins team that couldn't compete with anybody that year. Plus you never met a bigger Chris chambers fan than me. And Let's go ahead and open the kimono. Cried a little bit when he got traded. That was my favorite player of that era. He was a lot of fun to watch. And then watching him catch clutch postseason touchdowns that year, especially against a Colts team that I've never liked. The AFC East in me goes beyond 2002. And so the Colts to me are like the Jets, Bills, and Patriots. And watching him catch big touchdowns in that divisional round playoff win that year was awesome. And I mentioned the Vikings earlier. They were another team. The Cardinals at various points when Kyler Murray got drafted, I was very much in the pro Kyler Murray camp against people that were certain that he couldn't play or would get squashed like a bug was my favorite one that I always saw. Anyway, you get the idea. It's typically a strong correlation to my favorite draft prospects 
and my second team. And those that know me know that one of my favorite all-time prospects was Derwin James. I was also a huge Darren Sproles guy. I thought that old odd front they ran for seemingly 10 years with Igor Olshansky, Luis Castillo, and Jamal Williams was the coolest because those guys were there, again, for like a decade it seemed like. I was probably five years who didn't love Danian Tomlinson, who didn't love Antonio Gates. I was a big Antonio Cromartie fan. I was a big Ryan Matthews fan the year we traded back with them to draft Jared Odrick and Koa Misi for Ryan Matthews, which should have been Earl Thomas for us. But I digress. I love me some Phil Rivers too. I know most people didn't, but I loved Phil Rivers. And much like a lot of football enthusiasts who do preseason predictions, I can't tell you how many times I put that Chargers team all the way to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. Like every year, up until like three or four years ago, it seems, and times have changed since then. I still quite fancy the collection of talent they have. I think they have some of the coolest uniforms in football, and one thing hasn't changed. They seem to be among the most snake-bitten franchises in, in all of sports. Injuries, crazy sequences, they only seem to happen in Charger games. Chip-shot field goals gone awry, 65-yard field goals against them that split the uprights. It just seems like every year... They're just one game away with like four games that have some weird happenstance that would have been the difference had they won just one of them. Just go back to last year, the final game of the season. The Raiders are content to take a knee and take a tie and send that week 18 game into a even draw that would put both teams in the postseason. Then the Chargers call in really an ill-advised timeout and the Raiders say, hey, let's go ahead and get a first down here. And they do. And they kick a game-winning field goal and it knocks the Chargers out of the playoffs for the third straight year. They were a playoff team last in 2018 and they won a very fun wild card round game over rookie quarterback Lamar Jackson. But since then, lots of turnover keyed by their quarterback selection in 2020 of Justin Herbert, number six overall. The aforementioned Derwin James is the catalyst for that defense. He was actually named all pro at two different positions as a rookie in 2018. Joey Bosa was a home run pick for them. He won't play on Sunday. They've also got another all pro in Rashawn Slater, second year offensive tackle, who also is out for the season, but as a rookie and all pro, you get the picture there, right? Tom Telesco has drafted well. They also landed the superb Asante Samuel in the second round that same year. They've signed big names and traded for big names like Khalil Mack, Corey Lindsley, JC Jackson. They've made savvy moves getting proven veterans like Kyle Van Noy. They've utilized undrafted free agency to land, in my opinion, the best dual purpose back in football back in 2017 in Austin Eckler. It's a talented team, a team that's going to force you to defend every blade of grass, a team that will, with as much top-of-the-line talent, compete with you as anybody in the league, a team that plays the game by the numbers and will make you get stops on all four downs with Brandon Staley at the controls there, although he's backed off that a little bit, which he would go back to the 2021 Brandon Staley. Now we've gotten to know the Chargers, let's go ahead and see how they match up with your Miami Dolphins. Dolphins quarterback, versus the Charger safeties. And of course, that includes Miami's offense and San Diego's, whoa, there it is. Put a dollar in the jar. Los Angeles' defense. A Mike McDaniel offense versus a Brandon Staley-led defense. A fun matchup that to me is the opposite of last week. Last week, it was strength on strength, similar styles designed to excel in the same areas of the game. This one is the converse in that the Chargers play a completely different style of football. They feature the seventh highest blitz rate in the NFL. It's just under 30% blitz rate. In fact, they are one-tenth of a percentage point ahead of Miami in blitz frequency. They get to this with that five-man front and typically bring both edges. Van Noy and Mack are the two you have to contend with out there. But their 17.3% pressure rate is 28th. And if you listen to the podcast every week, you know we usually have played teams where their pressure rate is better than their blitz rate, which is tough to contend with. 
And that right there is the rub, boys and girls. They just haven't had the personnel to execute this Vic Fangio-style defense they run. It requires a dominant front to maintain their gap control, like Olshansky, Williams, and uh, Kistia would have done back in the day, hold blocks and make plays at the line. They're not getting that. They'll mix in blitzes from the back end, but that's not been effective enough either. They're going to zone you, and they're going to blitz you. Those are two principles they live by. This is why I think we see a yak explosion this week. I think there's going to be some vacancies in the short to intermediate. I think they'll pull down their best tackler out of the equation frequently in Derwin James. And I think Tua Tungavailoa's ability to see things quickly will allow us to get the ball out negate that rush, and punish them for sacrificing guys off that back end. We've seen the Dolphins have success against both the Blitz and Zone this season, right? I'm curious to see how the Chargers might adjust for that. Do you want to play man? Probably not. They run a pretty distinct defense, so I'm not sure you'd see a major overhaul in terms of adjustments. Probably just tweaks to contend with what Miami has to offer, which is a lot. It's a defense that plays a majority too high and relies upon an odd front with those two overhang backers, essentially a 5-1 front, sometimes 5-2 depending on how their secondary personnel matches up. So they will start in too high and rotate to some single high looks. Some thoughts on those facts. It's a defense that invites the run with a light box, then sneaks that rat down the hole. But they are incredibly thin up front, man. Like, they've been decimated by injuries up front. And you can also negate that edge rush with a successful outside run game, which teams have done to them all year long. They want to disguise you, but who has been better at deciphering disguise than our quarterback this year? Finding those soft spots quickly are key. This game is the opposite of last week in that the Niners defended that intermediate middle portion better than anybody since Fred Warner's 2018 arrival. Only four teams have allowed more 15-yard or more pass plays this season than the Chargers, where Miami leads the league with 75 such throws in that area. Actually, it's more now right? No, it's 75. It is 75. So maybe Miami can get back on track there. As far as their pre-snap alignments, single high is 34%, two high is 60%. They've played 0.6% this year and they operate out of 26%, 3-4 defense, which, you know, they'll take a lot of linebackers off the field a lot of times. Uh, 60% nickel defense and 10% dime, which there is your rub to the additional 3-4 looks that turn into 3-3, 3-2 looks with extra DBs in the field. If the Dolphins can get the running game going and find that balance, that would be a massive boon this week because the Chargers run defense has not been good. They're allowing a league high 5.4 yards per rush and the fifth most overall rushing yards in the NFL. They are banged up on the defensive line. Teams have found a lot of success running the football in the second half as the game wears on. In fact, only Houston has allowed more second half rushing yards than this Chargers team. As for the positional matchup, we talked about Tua taking those quick hitters against zones, taking advantage of clean pockets and getting back to more explosive play style of offense. They want to dial up the blitz. Few teams have done that against Miami because one, Tua is very good against the blitz and two, blitzing means fewer people to run with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. Common sense, right? An interesting matchup in that if they stay true to that, Miami must be sharp to make them pay, or do they adapt a little bit to contend with this high-powered offense? The key to it all, to me, is Derwin James. you got to find number three out there in that defensive backfield or linebacker position, really. He'll rush, he'll cover, he'll defend the run. At the safeties position this year, James has eight pressures on 27 blitzes, so when he comes, he's effective, and he's got he's been a part of four sacks. I don't know the exact sack total there. I didn't look it up, but on PFF, he's been a part of four sacks. Uh, 26 run stops. 27 for 43 are opposing teams passing against him for 214 yards. 
So it's only like five yards per pop, one touchdown and one pick. Nasir Adderley, another guy that I love coming out of the draft, nine of 14, our opponents passing against him for 119, a touchdown and a pick. He is the center fielder. He has not blitzed and he has like eight run stops this year. He's always in the post. And then Derwin kind of dictates what type of shell they'll play. This is another reason why I think this defense has so many issues. They just can't disguise a lot of what they do because three takes you to the football. He takes you to the defense. It's not the interchangeable safety group we talked about last week or what the New York Jets have or what the Buffalo Bills have. It, it's concrete in what they can do. And they will also bring Alohi Gilman as a third safety. He's got about 250 snaps this year. Former Golden Domer, who Kyle Krabs told me was a big fan of his a fit in this Dolphins defense. So kind of a similar look there in that sub-package big nickel look. He's strictly in the deep area of the field, though. No pass rush reps, just a handful of run defense. And in coverage, 6 for 7, 147, a touchdown and a pick. Let's get to the guys Tua will be throwing to in this game. Wide receivers and tight ends versus corners. A lot of milestone opportunities this week. Tua is just 141 yards away from 3K on the season. Tyreek Hill is 11 yards from breaking the single season franchise record set by Mark Duper back in 1984. And Waddle is 28 yards away from becoming the first Miami Dolphin with back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons. How crazy is that to say? The Chargers completed their secondary this offseason with the J.C. Jackson signing, but he has since been lost for the season. They still have a strong complement of corners, though, starting with Asante Samuel Jr. He and Michael Davis don't leave the field, and Bryce Callahan plays about half the snaps. He's the nickel, obviously, and some dime defense. They do run some big nickel, so there's a lot of disparity there with those numbers. Samuel is an instinctive, reactionary corner who is adept at the style of defense. Just like his pops from the Patriots back in the day, he can key against the quarterback and anticipate plays as they happen. It's a fun matchup there with our wide receivers because Tua and because of how he excels in that same vein. It has been a rough year for Samuel Jr. though this year. 48 of 78 our teams throwing against him. That's actually a pretty good completion percentage, but 615 yards, six touchdowns, and one pick. He's a quick twitch player, ran a 4-4-1 and measured well in all the explosive testing metrics, albeit a three-cone time in the 57th percentile so not really the the short area change of direction guy you might think he can play inside outside but this defense asks so much of their corners kind of like you see with the Denver Broncos you know with Pat Sertan the second last year like the way he came on as a rookie and played in that defense was so surprising uh similar with Houston Texans like a lot of these Tampa two or cover two type of defenses there's just so much on the plate in terms of reading that curl flat that seven route behind you the you know tight end coming across and split flow running backs it's just a lot to keep your eyes active and if that's the case against this offense with with what it's designed to do by creating certain levels of spacing and stretching the defense both vertically and horizontally any bit of second guessing is going to be an issue. And that's, we saw it work really in large part against a 49ers defense. It's probably the best in the NFL. We just, you know, the quarterback didn't play his best game of the year and he usually does play that well. So that's not a concern at all, but against this particular defense, to me, it's a good get right opportunity because a lot of thinking and processing is not a winning formula against these Dolphins wide receivers. Also, Michael Davis, 26 for 46, 268 yards and a touchdown allowed. He had a fun matchup with Devontae Adams last week. He does a good job of limiting completions, and that really popped off the tape when watching him. He just competes at every step of the route. His relative athletic scorecard coming out of college was just 5.76, just a 7.033 cone, and that does not bode well against really anybody in the Dolphins offense. He's had better success against bigger body guys and not as much against the speedier and shifty guys. Nonetheless, running good routes like Tyreek and Jalen do makes it tough on a player with this physical skill set. He did run a 4.4, but his vert and broads measured 
well below the league average. In fact, the the vert was in the two percentile, two percentile uh, across all players measured going back to the 1980s. He also measured in just the 27th percentile in 10 split. So how you get off the football. And this is why I think if they play any man coverage, this is the way to attack. If you can get him isolated on the boundary or condensed Watch out. Just the Detroit game for Jalen Waddle uh, from that slot fade touchdown that he scored. Bryce Callahan's opposite. Smaller corner, 5'9", 185 pounds. He is super nimble. They really have a little bit of everything in this corner room, which makes for an intriguing matchup style, right? His numbers are 31 of 41, 348 yards, three touchdowns, and three picks. I wonder if this is a chance for maybe Cedric Wilson to get some opportunities outside because he's a bigger slot and could potentially take advantage of some one-on-one downfield openings if he gets manned up against a smaller cornerback or Mike Gesicki. However, with how much zone they run here, it's probably more likely the guy we've been seeing all year, Trent Sherfield, doing what he does best and finding soft spots in the zones and making every catch you can possibly make. Tackling has not been a strong suit either, which is why I think Yak is going to come into play in this game for Miami. You guys know how I look at this each week. Like I always like our guys. It's been a struggle for the Chargers, and a big part of that is the pass rush has not been getting home nearly enough, especially on their blitz packages. Of course, not having Joey Bosa hurts a lot. Now that said, the only team that eclipsed 300 yards against them passing was the Kansas City Chiefs, and that's obviously aided by allowing three teams to go over 200 yards on the ground and eight of their 12 opponents to go over 150 on the ground. It could be like the Houston game, though, where you expect a big rushing output against a bad run defense, but because they're committed to stopping that, you get more on the back end. We'll see. On the offensive line versus defensive line, no Bosa, no Christian Covington, no Antonio Johnson, no Marilyn Ogbania. Five good defensive linemen on the IR, on the injury reserve currently. It's a front that runs a lot of rush games and tries to manufacture pressure through the system. I'm sure that thought was scaling that back a little bit when they landed Khalil Mack, but of course, without Bosa, you're a little more limited on your four-man rush options, and the games just haven't really stuck. Like They're not hitting with you know a, a rotating group of players because of the injuries, so that's kind of a benefit for a Dolphins offensive line. They're 29th against the run, 27th against the pass, but the two things that really work together, let's look at some numbers here, starting with the three primary edge defenders. Khalil Mack is around an 80%, 90% snap taker. Kyle Van Noy is not far off that, and Morgan Fox has been a great addition for that team, playing around three-fourths of the team's snaps. Uh, pressures and run stops for those guys, Mack 37 and 21, he's their best player there. Van Noy 16 and 13, and then Morgan Fox, again, very good value signing, 29 pressures and 13 run stops. If Mack is against Teron Arms, that's as good as it gets good on good they move those guys around a lot Morgan Fox is honestly sort of the catalyst in how he plays his size and ability to move people really just with his bull rushing and physical prowess helps the rush games and by his pressure numbers you can see that he's having success in that department as well we've got to deal we've got to be able to deal with Kyle Van Noy one-on-one his pass rush tank isn't what it used to be and you can get him in coverage as well he's a guy to target in this game as much as I love Van Noy's game for a long time it's been a bit of a step back this season here with the Chargers inside Sebastian Joseph Day is the key he plays about 70% of the snaps and with how wide their splits are between nose and like a frequently used four technique where you kind of have two gaps in there and linebackers have to come down and feel that unstacked He has a ton of responsibility in the middle of that defense. As far as the defensive tackles, pressures, and run stop numbers, Joseph Day, 14 pressures, 22 run stops. So not much interior pressure. And then the next two guys they have available, Bryden Fajoko and Tyler Davison, 
One pressure and six run stops and zero and zero for Davison. Those numbers in the last two guys are more of a symptom they haven't played a lot of football, obviously, which goes back to our original point about how banged up they are here. I never want to say this with conviction because we have one of the most prolific passing games in the league, but you have to imagine there's a concerted effort to get the run game going here this week because of that. I'm curious to see the style matchup too as they have those bigger gaps inside they can fill. And without the one gap style we saw last week, our guys should have a little more space to fire off the ball and climb to the second level on those Chargers linebackers the way they've done successfully in weeks prior. And it's been uh, tough getting off blocks for those Chargers linebackers. Apologies if you hear the kid running around upstairs right now. I don't have anybody to watch her, so... Two-kid da- two dad life, man. That's what we're doing. Let's go ahead and finish up here before our first break with running backs and linebackers. We mentioned the p- responsibility of the nose tackle. That primary linebacker, Kenneth Murray, has a ton on his plate as well, and he's super athletic out of Oklahoma, one of the best athletes at the position. But, man, it kind of reminds me of Patrick Queen, where if you can give him the cheese that will work pretty well. I want to reiterate that not every linebacker crew can play as disciplined and disrupt as many plays as the Niners did with Warner and Greenlaw. Granted, Tua has to play better, and had he, we win that game, but this is a great get-right spot right here. Murray, 21 run stops, 29 for 34. Our team's targeting him for 280 yards, a touchdown and a pick, and then Drew Tranquil, 37 run stops, 32 for 38, 268 yards allowed with a touchdown and a pick. For Mostert, Wilson in the backs, if they can get into some of those matchups and coverage paired with a strong running game. Man, it could be a running back type of day for Miami, especially in the second half of this game, and especially if the Dolphins can pick up the many blitzes and games without the use of a back who can sneak into the backfield. I should say sneak out of the backfield. Teams have had success in the screen game against this Chargers defense as well. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there as the zoo is in full effect here. We'll go ahead and come back on the other side and do the Dolphins defense versus the Chargers offense. That's next. Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by Auto Nation. Friday here on the Drive Time Podcast. This week has flown by because I've been in the hospital all week. Man, why do they tell you they're going to discharge you at 9 a.m. and then make you sit there till 3 o'clock in the afternoon? I wrote this entire script in the hospital. Not really stoked about that, but here we are. And then also, why do they have 14 different employees that come in and tell you, I am the hospital patient liaison. Just want to see how you guys are doing. We were doing good before you came in here and woke us up again for the fourth time in the last two hours. What's the deal with that? Dolphins defense versus Chargers offense, quarterback and offense versus safety position. And we start here with a Charger offense that has had problems staying healthy all year long. A hamstring limited Keenan Allen until recently. Mike Williams missed a bunch of time, returned, then injured his ankle in the first series of his return. The offensive line has been banged up and Justin Herbert had a rib injury early in the season. Austin Eckler is the engine that drives the offense, but we'll get to him in a moment. First, how the Chargers deployed their attack. 11 personnel, 71% of the time. So not a ton of variety, but they do operate 12 personnel, 15% of the time. And they use two back personnel, 10% of the time. 21, 7, 22 personnel with two backs, two tights is 3% of the time. They have a similar setup to the Niners in that they will use the extra offensive linemen in the game and take on you know, multiple varieties to different personnel packages. As you can see by the math, we've only accounted for 96% of the offense. Therein lies the other 4% of the offense, just extra offensive linemen for the most part. They'll use a fullback. They'll run the football. They'll spread it out. But the catalyst is the guy we mentioned above, Eckler. Again, we'll talk about him more in a moment. But you can draw conclusions from the numbers in this offense that are confirmed by the tape. They throw the ball to him a heck of a lot. And as a result, they have one of the lowest intended air yards 
offenses in football. That wasn't a good sentence. Only Matt Ryan and Baker Mayfield have a lower intended air yards than Justin Herbert. What's perhaps the craziest part of the stat, his average time to throw is 2.87 seconds. Only 10 quarterbacks hold the football longer, and when you watch them on tape, it's indicative by what you see. They have issues separating downfield, and a big part of that for sure is the injuries they've had at wide receiver. They don't hold up well in pass pro, more injuries there as well. And even though Herbert is adept at evading sacks and getting the football out, he doesn't really do anything with it when he goes off script and scrambles. I know you're going to say, Travis, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, you do see the one highlight reel play a week that he'll he'll make, but watch a full game and you'll see throwaways, you'll see sacks, you'll see misguided off-target throws, throws into tight coverage that gets batted up and picked off. Happens a lot in this offense. Uh, Yeah, and Herbert takes sacks at the eighth lowest rate in the NFL. He's tough to get to the ground and has the speed to make you pay with his legs. Constant pressure, however, is typically the key to impact a quarterback, and that's no different with Justin Herbert. Even going back to his college tape, make him uncomfortable, and he'll put the ball in harm's way. There was an Arizona State game against Oregon four or five years ago that I'll never forget because I was like, this is it. Uh, I think the most important thing here is to hit him early. He's not the type of quarterback to absorb that type of game and bounce back and stay in there all day. A bad day can snowball is what I'm trying to say. But if you let him get into a rhythm, he'll absolutely carve you up. By the numbers this year, when blitzed 61% for six and a half yards per pass, six touchdowns and two picks, when not blitzed, so four or less brushers, 68%, 6.6 yards per attempt, 14 touchdowns and five pick. I have never seen... Uh, or not this year at least, a near-even yards per attempt like that against the Blitz and not the Blitz. The truth of the matter is that offense doesn't find explosives, so if you can play patient and wait for the mistakes, which will happen, you can really limit this Chargers offense, as most teams have this year. Uh, when pressured, 55, here's what I'm talking about, making them comfortable, 55%, 5.5 yards per pass, five touchdowns and four picks. That's awful. Uh, 72% when not pressured, 7.1 yards per pass when not pressured. That's also really low, but then 15 touchdowns and three picks into to me, this is the game to bring all the big dogs. If they want to try to attack vertical one-on-one uh, to potentially a banged up, you know, Mike Williams, okay, I'll, I'll take that challenge. They're not going to be an offense that slices you up, meticulously goes through reads, generates longer pockets, or gets the ball out super hot by design. It's just not their game. Bring heat, hit Herbert, rattle him. Step three, profit. I've been loving Javon Holland's game the last few weeks. The range he showed on that McCaffrey tackle but right before the Zach Sealer stack up on fourth down that didn't quite hold up was absolutely insane and indicative of his skill sets. Teams that have shown that zero pressure look against the Chargers all year have gotten some free hitters, including a Cardinals game where a third down Isaiah Simmons sack where he came free unblocked and put Herbert on the turf and then they gave the ball right back and lost the game. They should have won that game because of that play. That type of play has been happening to the Chargers all year long, and we've seen Javon Holland come down off the edge a lot in recent weeks. I expect him to get a couple more free runs of the quarterback here against these L.A. Chargers on Sunday Night Football. I've been waiting all day for Sunday night. Cut it, keep it, we'll keep it. Wide receivers and tight ends versus cornerbacks. The safeties continue over here a little bit into covering the Chargers tight ends because Gerald Everett and Trey McKitty are pretty good players. That could be a potential matchup for Eric Rowe. I just, I think Eric Rowe's having a nice season in the role that he's kind of fell into here, especially after losing Brandon Jones. Elsewhere, this could be the healthiest the Chargers have been at wide receiver in a while. We'll see about Mike Williams' availability, but he's been practicing on a limited basis this week. If he's healthy, they'll throw him deep shots all game, especially into that boundary. It's a big key. Don't let him go up and posterize you all game long. I'd take him over any receiver in the game on contested catches. He's 12 for 20 in that category this year. 
Then there's Keenan Allen, one of the true pros of route running. He's one of the most underrated receivers in all of the football the last decade. He often requires a bracket, a chip, and a reroute because he's just too tough to cover one-on-one, especially from that condensed split. I would expect it to be the case this week. And Xavier Howard seems to be a great matchup to me for Mike Williams. They've got DeAndre Carter and Josh Palmer, who both have made some plays for them. That seems to me like the matchup for Cater Kohu, and then inside some attention to Keenan Allen, some doubles and brackets, like I mentioned, some reroutes. And that's really been the plan for a lot of defenses that have faced this team the last couple of years, including us a couple of years ago when Allen was held in check in that 2020 game where he drew Nick Needham, but some frequent help there as well. And the fact of the matter is this, they throw the ball all over the yard, 100 targets for Eckler, 77 for Palmer, three more guys have better than 50 targets this year. Stay sharp, don't get lulled to sleep, and your conditioning will be tested with how many routes they'll run against you. And again, it's largely a 10 and under offense, so I'm really curious to see how they deploy Verone McKinley, Javon Holland, Eric Rowe. Throwing deep this year, 20-plus air yards, the Chargers are completing just 36% of those passes, 11.8 yards per attempt, but they do have seven touchdowns and two picks. So 11.8 yards per attempt is not a good number for how many times they throw it down the field. But the seven touchdowns is. So you can't completely cast it out because if you do, they'll hit you for a big play touchdown and that can obviously change football games. On the offensive line, defensive line, it's tough to tell what you'll get from an availability standpoint as the Chargers have been really hit by the injury bug at this spot this season. Last Sunday, it was Jamari Slayler, uh, Matt Filer, Will Clapp, Zion Johnson, and Foster Sorrell. Their pressures and pass blocking snaps this year are as follows. Sailor, 28 pressures on 448. He's been a really good conversion guard uh, as a rookie out of the tackle position this year. Matt Filer, 30 pressures, 586 snaps. He was a tackle converted to guard from the Steelers a couple years back. Will Clapp, just eight pressures on 239 snaps in the pivot. Zion Johnson, the rookie out of Boston College, love his game, but he's struggled this year as well. 30 pressures on 578 pass blocking snaps, and then Foster Sorrell, 12 pressures, 117 pass blocking snaps. I think you'll probably see Corey Lindsley back at center this week. That's big for them. He practiced on a limited basis and is working back from a concussion. He's a key cog getting those blitzes picked up, those games picked up, and of course in the running game, just two pressures allowed from him on 341 pass blocking snaps. He's the best center in football. We also have to see about Trey Pipkins. He's been banged up a lot this year like this whole unit has been they might get some help back inside but the tackle spot has really been hurt by those injuries and they just don't have the guns out there for Miami they've been stout in that department all year I think they can have success in the running game and what's more important is Eckler in the passing game tackle 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 man and we highlight this all at the time as a great trait I should say all the time is a great trait but the screen game equals retracing steps right and we've seen the effort this front gives in that regard. If they play with that effort all game long, they should be able to make some big plays. Big game inside for Wilkins, Sealer, and Raekwon. Sailor has been pressed into tackle duty and acquitted himself nicely out there, but I do believe this should be a big Bradley Chubb game against the rookie. It should be a big Jalen Phillips game off the other edge. Melvin and Gink, all those guys should get constant pressure in this game. They better. Uh, full transparency, Miami needs to dominate here. Let's be honest about it. Herbert's been sitting duck back, the year, back there this year. He's not responding to the pressure well, and he's taking everything underneath if Miami can win with multiple rush lanes consistently where you force them off the spot and then get that second guy home akin to the Houston and the Cleveland game this could be another game where he has to shave his head after the game running backs and linebackers it's not often our key player comes in the final segment although I suppose it was the case last week too with Christian McCaffrey Austin Eckler is a shifty smart fluid runner with exceptional hands contact balance and a nose for the goal line 
Now, Jerome Baker seen his role evolve this year as it has for years. We've seen more Duke Riley of late, and I think we need both of those guys' speed here. McCaffrey had some success in the passing game last week, and, if, and you can understand how tough it is to give him attention with all those Niners' weapons, right? If the Chargers have everybody back, the same thing will be true here, but if not, then give more attention to Austin Eckler. Baker in coverage and a multitude of responsibilities off the edge, stack linebacker, playing some of his best ball the last couple of weeks, and then Duke to contend with the speed of both the quarterback and the running back, and then don't forget about Landon Roberts because the Chargers do operate some two-back and full-back game, and that's where 52 shines, of course. They also give Joshua Kelly a decent workload, and he's more between-the-tackle between style of runner, so more Landon Roberts there. Eckler's just awesome, man. 29 forced missed tackles as a ball carrier, 20 as a receiver. Again, tackling is a key to stopping that guy and this offense. On special teams, DVOA ranks. Miami's dead last, man. It's not been good. Chargers are 12th. Not much to update you with Jason Sanders and Thomas Morstead. Sanders was perfect last week for the second straight week. He's up to 81% this year on field goals, 91.4 on PATs, and Teastead had his share of punts last week. He's pinning opponents inside the 20-yard line at a 34% rate and a touchback rate of just 5%, and we're grossing just under 40 yards per punt this year. The Chargers have had injury issues of their own and had to use three kickers, but Cameron Dicker looks to have stabilized that spot for them. He's a perfect 10 of 10 from under 50 and one miss from beyond that. And then J.K. Scott has a 2% touchback rate, 41% rate inside the 20-yard line and a gross of 41.8. So there you go. We're going to go ahead and take our last break and come back on the other side and do what's at stake, the three keys and pick the week 14 games. That's next, Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Big, big, important football game on Sunday night in Los Angeles from SoFi Stadium. What's at stake in that game? Well, not to be overly dramatic here, but everything. This is the week that we've made this segment for. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Travis, that's next week against the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, that's when it's all on the line if you win this game. Granted, a win against Buffalo after a loss to the Chargers would also be huge. But winning this game does two things. Number one, it keeps you in control of your own destiny. In fact, I venture to say that if Miami wins the next two, no small task, they become the overwhelming favorites to win the division. And by that, I mean that I expect them to take care of those final three opponents if they can get through these first two. And now perhaps you say, well, if you believe that, then this game isn't that important, is it? Look, no singular game is ever that important until it is, right? Like until the tournament or until Buffalo 2020 or until Tennessee 2021. Like you can lose and bounce back most of the time. But man, from a confidence and belief standpoint and from my own goddamn sanity on social media and all these horrendous hot takes and woefully misguided discourse, damn it, I need to see a win in this game. And then two which is most important really is essentially it locks you into the postseason. I mean, you can't lose the last four and expect to get in at nine and eight, but from a playoff picture standpoint, it is a big one. A win over the Chargers puts Miami at nine and four with a head-to-head tiebreaker over both teams in the current eight and nine positions. Now the Patriots could jump to seven with a win on Monday and the Jets with a loss to the Bills on Sunday. Not at all inconceivable, I expect it actually. But even then, by beating the Jets in the finale, you could then get the divisional advantage over them. So this point holds true. And that's that by beating the Chargers, you essentially develop a two-game lead with head-to-head tiebreakers over the nearest challengers with four games to go. And a step further, if one of the Raiders, Browns, or Steelers at five and seven makes a run, well, Miami has head-to-head tiebreakers on two of those teams and a vastly superior conference record to the other, the Raiders. Six and two for Miami, four and five for the Raiders. And, and if the Patriots lose and Miami wins, then it's a three-game advantage with all of those head-to-head tiebreakers and four games left to play. It's 
Here, I'll tell you what it is. Too long, didn't read version. The Dolphins enter week 14 with an 87% chance to make the playoffs. Per 538, if they win, that number jumps to 95%, a loss down to 71%. So it's a very important game, plus, like Coach says, a chance to show your peers and really the nation what you've got. Never take an opportunity for granted. And you really think I'm going to go this entire podcast without mentioning the quarterback battle here? I mean, we need a decisive victory in that department like we need air, don't we? A chance for the entire nation to see that arm strength isn't the end-all be-all to the quarterback position, or even a top-five quarterback trait for that matter. A chance to show everyone that playing the position of quarterback is, guess what, a talent. Gosh, I sure do hate when someone says a player is more talented because of tangible traits. I even saw a tweet from a beat writer from the Jets previously that said that Zach Wilson's more talented than Tua. What? Like hell he is. <laughs> it's a talent to see the field. It's a talent to anticipate. It's a talent to layer the football. So here's hoping we get some more movement on that this week. And if not, I guess who cares? It doesn't matter. The three keys of victory. Number one, run the football. This defense has not defended the run well this year, and Miami can help their their own defense and stay fresh and just dictate the pace of the game. And if you run the ball well, this passing game is going to be unstoppable as a result of that. Key number two, process and attack defensive rotation. What I mean by that is this defense, it pretty much shows you what it's going to do. So for Tua to be sharp in those areas of the field like he has been all year and just play at the level we've grown accustomed to, opposed to what we saw last week, be a big key for the Dolphins offense this week. And number three, pressure the opposing quarterback. Again, Justin Herbert, like most quarterbacks, just not the same under heavy duress. Put that pressure on the quarterback. You should have success as a defense if you are the Miami Dolphins. Let's go ahead and finish up with the week 14 picks. The Thursday night game already happened, although I'm taping this on 621 on Thursday night. So uh, scouts honor, I guess you guys have to believe me that I took the Raiders over the Rams. Not that inconceivable to think about, right? I mean, the Rams are pretty dreadful at this point of the season on Sunday. Give me the Lions over the Vikings in an upset. Give me the Steelers over the Ravens. The Ravens offense, I think is a little bit broken right now. Steelers seem to be coming on strong. I'll take the Bengals over the Browns, although Joe Burrow has not beaten the Browns before, but Deshaun Watson, I think is, uh, I just don't think it's going to work out for him because, well, it shouldn't, uh, Give me the Bills over the Jets. Give me the Cowboys over the Texans. Duh. Give me the Eagles over the Giants. I'll take the Titans to really put a bow on the AFC South already over the Jaguars. Give me the Chiefs over the Broncos. I like the Seahawks over the Panthers. Niners over Bucks as Brock Purdy keeps rocking and rolling. Take the Dolphins over the Chargers. And give me the Cardinals over the Patriots on Monday Night Football. All right, that's my time. Back with you all early Monday morning, I believe. I'll have the podcast done sooner this week, provided the kiddos let me get it done, because uh, Seth and OJ are going to be holding down the post-game show the next two weeks, and we'll have the same podcast scheduled this week. Next week, I should say, that we had this past week. And then back at it for the regular schedule come Packers week and Christmas. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Winkle NFL, the team at Miami Dolphins, Fish Tank, Spaces, Post Game Show, YouTube channel for media availabilities and Dolphins today. Last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Caroline and Cameron, daddy's coming home.